Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled The COVID-19 Chronicles, Real-World Perspectives on Cancer Care, Emergency Medicine, and Healthcare Disparities is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity titled The COVID-19 Chronicles, Real-World Perspectives on Cancer Care, Emergency Medicine, and Healthcare Disparities. I am Dr. Robert Macharnik, Professor of Clinical Medicine at Southern Illinois University. I am joined today by Dr. Pellin Sinar, Medical Director of Quality and Safety at the University of California and Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center in San Francisco, California, and Dr. Malika Fair, Senior Director for Health Equity Partnerships and Programs at the Association of American Medical Colleges and Associate Clinical Professor of Emergency Medicine at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences Center in Washington, D.C., Here is a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label usages of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here is our financial disclosure. And here are the learning objectives for this activity. Uh, Today, Dr. Sinar and Dr. Fair will discuss, evaluate, and provide their interprofessional perspectives on cancer care, emergency medicine, and healthcare disparities as these clinical areas are affected by COVID-19. Let's start by discussing how we can protect cancer patients and others at high risk of COVID-19. Dr. Sinar, can you tell us briefly why cancer patients are at higher risk of COVID-19? Thank you, Dr. Macharnik. Uh, I'm happy to talk about the high risk patient population uh, for patients with cancer and COVID-19. From the data available to us at this point, we've seen a higher incidence of COVID-19 in patients with cancer. Um, There's certainly geographic variation on the incidence of COVID-19 in patients with cancer. And we've seen two reports from China that have shown that compared to the general population, the incidence in the community, um, there is a higher rate in patients with cancer. Um, So when you at all looked at their cancer patients admitted to their hospital between 2019 of December 2019 and February 2020, there were about 0.8% who were diagnosed with COVID-19 compared to 0.37% in the community. Similarly, uh, in the general population in another region of China, uh, they've seen 0.3% in the general population compared to the cancer patients who had an incidence of 1%. Now, when we look at Madrid and Spain, their community rates were relatively similar at 0.63. However, the incidence in patients with cancer was much higher at 4.2%. And this was similar to the New York experience where there was a higher prevalence of cancer in those patients with COVID-19 who were hospitalized. That was about 6%. In Italy, 8% of the patients who were admitted to the ICU with COVID-19 had histories of cancer. And clearly, some of these cancers were active, while other patients had their cancer in remission. 
Um, so certainly different rates of uh, incidence, but nevertheless a higher incidence. Patients uh, who are older, who have uh, multiple comorbidities, including obesity, diabetes, hypertension, perhaps smoking history, and who have been diagnosed with hematologic malignancies, lung cancer, and metastatic disease appear to be at higher risk for COVID-19. And this comes from several different groups that have reported it. Um, Palsamonti reported that mortality rates were higher for patients with hematologic malignancies who were tested positive for COVID-19 and who were symptomatic from their disease. Um, the standard mortality ratio was about two in that population, and this was in the Italian population. Um, similarly, Mallard, they had a smaller sample size of 25 patients, but they specifically looked at hematologic malignancies most patients had multiple myeloma, um, and these patients also appear to have a higher mortality rate um, at about 40% at one month. Um, and that seems to be around the range of the mortality rate. Um, similarly, um, in a, in a, in a um, uh, retrospective case study that involved uh, hospitals from Italy, Spain, and Netherlands, uh, Van Dusen reported that about 59 patients with hematologic malignancies, 34% of them died due to COVID-19. Uh, and the mortality rates were different for the different age populations in this particular group. For patients who were older than 60 years of age, mortality was 45%, but much lower at 11% for those who were younger than uh, 60 years of age. They didn't appear to see any survival difference between lymphoid and myeloid malignancies. Some patients with COVID-19 will develop severe respiratory symptoms or COVID-19 associated coagulopathy. Are patients with certain types of cancer, such as lung cancer or hematologic malignancies, more vulnerable to these virus-related complications? Um, this is data from Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, in New York, and they observed higher frequencies of hospitalizations and severe respiratory illness um, in patients who had cancer, um, specifically hematologic malignancies seem to have uh, a higher risk of the developing COVID-19 and, and having severe disease from it. Uh, interestingly, systemic chemotherapy given within 30 days was not significant. Um, however, those patients who were treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors appear to have a severe illness secondary to their COVID-19. Um, lung cancer, once again, appeared to have a higher risk, um, and it appeared to be even higher if those patients were uh, received immunotherapy or immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, Teravolt study uh, is a lung uh, cancer-specific uh, registered study that's international. It's a cohort study. Um, and it showed that there was high mortality in this patient population. But interestingly, what they noted uh, when they looked at their data was that there was a low admission rate to the intensive care unit in these patients. So while 88% of the patients met criteria for ICU admission, only 9% of them were actually admitted. At this point, there isn't a real clear uh, explanation of why that may have happened. And what they also noted was that the type of systemic therapy, whether TKIs or tyrosine kinase inhibitors, chemotherapy or immunotherapy, 
um, were administered to these patients and their survival was not affected by that. There were multiple meta-analyses that have also shown worse clinical outcomes in these patients with cancer who develop COVID-19. For these reasons, uh, to decrease the risk of complications, NCCN has developed consensus, consensus guidelines to address bone marrow suppression, specifically neutropenia with the use of granulocyte colony stimulating factors. Um, for anemia and thrombocytopenia, the use of erythropoiesis stimulating agents and thrombopoietic mimetics with perhaps a lower threshold than we would have done prior to the pandemic. ASCO has also provided guidelines for the uh, practicing clinicians to decrease this risk that we're now seeing. And what precautions have been put in place to reduce risk and preserve patient and caregiver safety? In an effort to provide safety um, for our patients and healthcare workers, early uh, phases of the pandemic involved multiple different uh, protocols to, to be able to provide a continued high quality of care, but doing it in a safe manner. Um, a lot of institutions implemented pre-screening and screening for COVID-19 symptoms and, ex uh, and exposure history. Some of this was done via telephone visits prior to the, uh, to the, uh, to the visit to the cancer center. Um, some were paper formats, but most institutions also developed digital platforms to be able to do this. Those patients who, who had symptoms that were concerning were evaluated and treated in designated areas with designated and dedicated units and, and staff members to be able to decrease the exposure risk to those patients with cancer and also other staff members. Um, and as we all know, telehealth and telemedicine became a big part of how we continue to care for our patients. There were a lot of no visitor versus limited visitor policies, once again, to reduce the risk of exposure in the healthcare setting. Very early on, the elective surgeries were limited in addition to some of the procedures. And we'll talk a little bit about why that became very important for the cancer center population. Um, ultimately, after uh, about a month or two, where there wasn't high incidence of cases, surgeries started uh, revving back up again. In medical oncology specifically, we started thinking about and being innovative about how we continue to provide systemic therapy for our patients. Some patients' infusional chemotherapy um, or systemic therapy was switched to oral agents whenever possible. Um, there were a potential consideration of increased interval between cycles so that they had fewer in-person visits or fewer in-person um, uh, infusion therapy or visits to the infusion center. There were some treatments that were done at home. Um, clearly, we discouraged any infusional chemotherapy to be, to be given at home, but pump disconnection uh, and development of protocols to do that, as well as administering growth factors at home, um, became an important part of the care that we delivered. The treatment response was previously monitored by scans as well as biomarkers. Um, during the pandemic, we started increasing the interval between scans, um, perhaps using biomarkers in lieu of scans a bit more than we did prior to the pandemic. Similarly, for the um, healthcare workers, there was uh, a big concern early on with PPE and assuring that there's appropriate PPE for the healthcare workers. Um, there were centralized resources and websites to communicate 
the ever-changing landscape of recommendations and guidelines that were changing almost on a daily basis. Um, we implemented telecommuting for many of our providers. And of course, for on-site staff, we also implemented rotations and cohorts on a daily basis to reduce the risk of exposure. There were clear stay at home and return to work guidelines, which uh, provided guidance to our, all of our staff. And an important part of the pandemic became uh, addressing mental health with so social distancing, physical distancing, social isolation became a real concern for many of our patients and healthcare workers um, were faced with burnout. So providing wellness and stress management for not only our patients, but also for our co colleagues and healthcare workers were really an important part of how we managed the early phases of the pandemic and continue to do so. So a lot of the interventions that we implemented early during the pandemic continue to um, be a part of our clinical practice at this point. But as we started opening back up the cancer centers um, and, and welcoming more of our patients, there were additional uh, measures that we had to take. Initially, we were asking for masking for patients with symptoms, but ultimately universal masking became a part of institutions. Um, additionally, from what we learned in clinic with the use of telehealth, a lot of patients were quite satisfied and very happy with the fact that they didn't have to drive into busy cities, uh, finding parking. Um, and so we are continuing to provide telehealth visits for our patients, once again, to reduce their in-clinic visits whenever possible. Um, of course, only if this is appropriate for the particular patient population. There were dashboards that were developed during the pandemic to be able to follow um, COVID-19 positive patients and the volumes of those patients. And now those dashboards have also evolved to include patient volumes in clinic and in the infusion center in an effort to, um, to help us with the recovery efforts. In clinic safety included floor and chair signs that uh, encourage physical distancing and recommend physical distancing and plexiglass screens have been implemented between patients and staff in an effort to protect our healthcare workers and our patients. Remote registration became a really integral part of how we check in and check out our patients, and some of that is done via telehealth and digital platforms. And clinical trials, uh, we all have to recognize, really changed during the pandemic. Um, we started implementing electronic signature, remote documentation, um, remote visits whenever possible, as well as remote laboratory studies, which hadn't really been allowed in the past. Um, I think that this is really telling us how we can potentially redesign the way that we deliver oncology care um, and, and able to allow us to perhaps uh, accrue more patients into our clinical trials. And under wellness, one additional thing we have to recognize is the fact that schools uh, have not opened fully at majority of the states. Uh, children continue to have remote learning at home. And this presents uh, a challenge for a lot of young families who have children at home. Um, and childcare, uh, providing childcare became an integral part of how we supported our healthcare workers um, during this difficult time. Um, how and when we can safely bring our patients with COVID back to our cancer centers is really an important topic that comes up on a daily basis, multiple times a day. Um, CDC changed their guidelines 
from a test-based strategy to really a time-based strategy. Um, the discontinuation of isolation at this point is such that for patients, uh, the general population 10 days after symptom onset or uh, PCR positive, um, if they didn't have symptoms, uh, can be done. Um, for cancer patients or immunocompromised patients, that timeline is usually around 20 days. Um, and for severely immunocompromised patients, a test-based strategy can still be considered. For all others, a test-based strategy is really no longer recommended. Um, when we think about for patients who already had or diagnosed with symptomatic COVID-19, those patients actually don't need to be retested if uh, they have any symptoms within three months. If patients develop new symptoms and there is an alternative etiology, so for cancer patients, it could be due to treatment-related symptoms, it could be disease progression, um, that may actually warrant some retesting in this patient population, but it really can be identified by the provider who knows the patient the best. For, for persons or for patients who never developed symptoms, the date of first positive PCR is always used when taken into consideration the discontinuation recommendations. Thank you, Dr. Sinar. Dr. Fair, from an emergency medical provider's perspective, can you summarize what patients are at higher risk for contracting COVID and why? Thank you, Dr. Maternik. You know, we have the pleasure of working in an emergency department across the nation where we can see any patient that walks through our doors. Um, but there are definitely populations that we are really concerned about. Um, those who are, uh, who are older in age, those who have chronic medical conditions. And we also have to consider social factors. So those who are uh, experiencing homelessness, who are working in, uh, in areas that they have extreme contact with individuals uh, or a lot of contact with individuals as well as those who live in congregated settings, so such as um, those who are in prisons, um, those who are in detaining facilities, um, and who live in multi-generational homes. Um, one thing that we have noticed in this pandemic, and this is what we see across a variety of diseases, illnesses, and injuries, is uh, health inequities, and in particular, uh, marginalized racial and ethnic groups we see an increase in the COVID-19 um, and that has brought national as well national attention as well as attention in our medical community. Now let's discuss some, uh, the issue of racial disparities and inequities in healthcare delivery during the COVID-19 pandemic and how we can address them. So according to recent CDC data, we noticed that Black, Latinx, and Native American populations um, have extreme increased risk of susceptibility and of exposure to the virus. What we're seeing is that Black, Latinx, and Native American populations are three, up to three times more likely to contract the virus, up to five times more likely to be hospitalized, and Black and Native American populations are up to two times more likely to, um, to die of COVID-19. And this is extremely concerning. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of conversation around why these disparities exist. And even though we see this across a variety of illnesses, it begged the question, why now? And what can we do about it? There are three main areas that cause these disparities, and that would be increased exposure to the virus, increased susceptibility, and decreased access to care. So if we start with increased exposure, we know that according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, 
that Black and Latinx populations are overrepresented in service-related jobs, in grocery stores, in transportation, those that have increased exposure to face-to-face -face contact. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a huge emphasis on PPE for the medical community, but not for individuals who were in these service-related industries. We also see in terms of social determinants of health that housing plays a major factor. Those who are experiencing homelessness or living in homes um, that increase their risk for the disease. Also, Black and Latinx populations and Native Americans are overrepresented in populations that have uh, congregate settings. So those experiencing homelessness in, um, in congregate uh, facilities such as in prisons or jails and also um, in detaining facilities. Now, we also have to think about what the next risk, which is increased susceptibility. Again, the conversation stopped at uh, chronic medical conditions, and oftentimes that included a conversation on healthy behaviors. But if you think a little bit more about why people are experiencing these chronic diseases, such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity, then it allows us to explore some of the social reasons for this. Those social reasons include um, as I mentioned with social determinants of health, if you ask your patients to uh, to eat healthy, um, which is of course a recommendation that would reduce your risk for hypertension, reduce your risk for diabetes, uh, we know that African-Americans are more than twice as likely to live in an area that is a food desert. If you ask your patients to exercise, which also would reduce your risk of diabetes, hypertension, and obesity, we know that for African-American men, um, they're unlikely to exercise in neighborhoods that are um, that have a higher number of white people or that is less uh, diverse because of fear that they are going to be seen as a criminal. And the example, of course, with Ahmaud Aubrey being killed this summer. Um, for black women who are exercise, more likely to exercise in white neighborhoods because of fear of safety in predominantly black neighborhoods. We ask our patients to stop smoking. Um, and Dr. Sinar mentioned that that's also a risk factor for, for the disease. But what we see is that there are 10 times more tobacco ads in black communities than there are in white communities. For housing, we can also think about uh, the neighborhood and the environment. And we know that there's a 15% increase in mortality for those experiencing COVID-19 because of the air quality, because of air pollution. So another explanation for these health disparities. And then finally, let's think about what our role is in the healthcare system. And the third area is decreased access to care. Unfortunately, in this pandemic, we noted that uh, those who were experiencing some of the, the worst outcomes in this disease had the least access to care. In states across the nation that have a higher number of black residents are some of the same states that did not expand access to Medicare. Um, also, there are several individuals that lost their job during the pandemic. Um, which remove their access to employer-based health insurance, um, and COBRA is typically extremely expensive. And finally, when our patients came to our doors, they also experienced health care inequities. A study in the Northeast looked at seven states and looked at claims data for Black patients that presented with fever and cough and noted that they were less likely to receive a referral for COVID-19 test. So, what I've described here is a complex answer to why we see these health inequities. There is no easy solution, um, but it's extremely important that we not stop at the uh, answer of chronic medical conditions, but ask ourselves, what are the underlying causes? How can we as 
physicians can how are we contributing to some of these differences as well as what we need to do to address this in society what examples of disparities and inequities in healthcare delivery during the COVID-19 pandemic have come to light based on your experience? Personally, uh, this has impacted my own community. I was raised in, in the church in Michigan in a predominantly African-American de denomination. And this spring, we lost 30 of our bishops in a matter of a few months, including those in my family. This is not an unusual story. We saw stories like this all across the country. Um, and we have a responsibility to do something about it. How has this crisis highlighted the need to repair a broken healthcare system to improve service to the vulnerable patient populations? Well, we in the healthcare system have to apply an equity lens to our work. As I mentioned, we saw these healthcare disparities, not just in our patients, but also in the care that we are providing. And it is important that we ask for and we produce data um, to stratify by race and ethnicity so that we can identify these inequities and make changes on the care that we are providing, as well as impact the health outcomes of the communities that we are serving. We also noted extreme disparities in access to care. In addition to the examples that I mentioned, we saw that there was inadequate testing across the nation. In some cities, in Memphis in particular, we saw that there were testing sites across the city, but in black neighborhoods, they did not have the supplies necessary to continue testing and they had delayed uh, diagnosis. In Philadelphia, we saw uh, more testing sites in affluent neighborhoods than poor neighborhoods. Um, so we as a medical system have to think about making sure that we have equity and access to care, both in testing as well as in the care that we are providing. We also have to advocate for expanded health insurance for our patient populations to make sure that although you can come to any ED in America at any time of day and we will treat you, it is important that you receive comprehensive care, not just in the emergency department, but in primary care and cancer care, as my colleague uh, was speaking about, um, as well as um, you know, in the office and in our hospitals. One thing that this pandemic has pointed out is a lack of trust of our communities in the care that we're providing and in extreme emergencies like the one we are experiencing. And how can we better engage communities in healthcare resources to reduce disparities in care delivery, coordination, and communication? Well, we as clinicians need to make sure that we are not talking at our communities, but talking with our communities. That includes reaching out to local community leaders, faith, the faith community, and making sure that um, our institutions have a warm and welcoming culture and climate so that when individuals come inside our building, they know that they are receiving the best care possible and they are being seen as individuals um, and being valued by their shared decision-making. Um, and also that we don't wait for communities to come to us, but we go to them and uh, we go in partnership, making sure that we reach their stated health outcomes. With the history of mistrust and the history of um, outrageous acts on behalf of the medical community, it is no surprise that there is tension to this day and how that has shown up in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and that gives us a, a opportunity as a medical community to build partnerships, to rebuild trust, 
um, and to ensure that these inequities do not exist going forward. Dr. Fair gave a fantastic overview of the healthcare inequities and uh, the disparities um, in our uh, population. And I'm just gonna briefly discuss that uh, from the lens of oncology or cancer, uh, cancer patients. Um, as, as Dr. Fair mentioned, minorities are more likely to hold essential jobs that don't allow for flexibility of working from home. Um, they're also more likely to work lower income jobs that provide minimal or no health insurance coverage. In 2018, um, a study showed that 11% of Blacks and 18% of Hispanics were uninsured. And uh, more recently, data from ASCO's Cancer Link has reported that out of the 965 patients in their registry who have a diagnosis of COVID-19, Black and Latinx population had a higher risk of developing COVID-19. Although their all-cause all mortality wasn't elevated in the population, um, it's really important to note that there is uh, a problem here that we all need to address. In addition, when we think about telehealth, uh, we earlier we, we mentioned how wonderful it was to be able to continue to care for our patients um, remotely via telehealth whenever it was possible. But we also have to recognize that there is a certain patient population that we may not have been able to um, provide that kind of care. Perhaps it's due to inability to access or navigate the technology. They may not have a computer or cell phone. They may have inadequate internet connection. There may be lower healthcare literacy that won't allow for appropriate communication to be done via telephone or a video visit. And studies have previously shown that minorities or individuals with less education or those who are in lower socioeconomic classes or, or, or status are less likely to engage in telemedicine activities. So we certainly have an opportunity for improvement there to be able to provide equitable care. Another component of disparities arises from the problem of not being able to do elective surgeries and procedures and specifically for screening for cancer. Uh, we know that, as, and we mentioned that during the early phases of the pandemic, we actually stopped doing any screening procedures like colonoscopies and pap smears, et cetera. Um, and the concern is that this may, uh, at the end, increase cancer in the patient population and perhaps more advanced stages of cancer will be recognized. And this continues to be a problem because while we are now offering those procedures to our patients, the majority of the patients are afraid to come back into the healthcare system to get these screening um, studies. And this I thought was a, a really good demonstration that shows three different scenarios of how rapidly we can come back to uh, screening and the potential deaths that may be associated that are due to cancer and how they may increase up to 10,000 annually um, due to the issues with delayed screening. Now let's discuss some case examples talking about how patients should be treated in light of rapidly emerging evidence and best practice recommendations for COVID-19 while ensuring health equity during treatment planning. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Sanar, as you discuss an oncology case example. Thank you. Um, I'd like to now discuss a case, a patient with a metastatic breast adenocarcinoma. Um, this is a 49-year-old black female um, who had BRCA positive metastatic triple negative breast cancer 
who also had a history of PE that was diagnosed back in 2017. The patient has advanced disease with metastatic disease to the internal mammary no node, lungs, and pleura. And due to loss of insurance in early pandemic uh, period, between February and July 2020, she was lost to follow up and was actually not followed by her oncology team. She subsequently presented in July 2020 with fever, uh, productive cough, dyspnea, and myalgias. And interestingly, she had presented a month prior at a different institution when a CT chest was obtained, was negative for worsening PE, um, and was tested for COVID-19, which at that time was negative. She was subsequently discharged with antibiotics for pneumonia. During the current presentation, she didn't have a sick contacts or exposure to COVID-19 or any recent travel. Her breast cancer history um, was that, such that she was initially diagnosed in 2013. Uh, she received neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery and then some adjuvant carboplatin. Unfortunately, she was diagnosed with metastatic disease in 2016 and subsequently received multiple lines of therapy, including some clinical trials. She also had hypertension and diastolic heart failure, as well as the segmental PE that I mentioned earlier. When she presented in the ER, uh, she was hypotensive, uh, tachycardic, which both responded to IV fluids. Um, and her respiratory rate was at 26, uh, with an oxygen saturation in room air at 89%, which improved on uh, two to three liters nasal cannula um, oxygen. Uh, she was subsequently started on antibiotics. Her physical exam also was notable for crackles in the left, lower, and mid lung fields, uh, but no ronchi or wheezing. She otherwise had warm and well-perfused extremities, no cyanosis, clubbing, or edema. So what is our differential diagnosis for this patient uh, with her history and her presentation? Um, could it be due to disease progression? Um, she has extensive disease involving the lung. Could this be worsening of her PE? Uh, pneumonia, uh, which was diagnosed a month prior, COVID-19 exacerbation of her diastolic heart failure, potentially more than one of the above. Um, so in this case, I think we have to choose more than one of the above. Uh, she certainly can have disease progression, worsening PE. Uh, she could have a pneumonia. And, and we're also concerned about COVID-19 in this case, even though a month ago it was negative uh, by PCR, it doesn't mean that she could not have been exposed during that time period. So what should be the next steps in the workup? Uh, chest X-ray, COVID-19 PCR testing, CT angiogram, and PE protocol. A combination of uh, these responses or all of the above. I would say in her case with her history, we probably need to do all of the above. However, if we're gonna get a CT angiogram with a PE protocol, we probably don't need to get a chest X-ray. Um, so ideally, the answer would be a COVID-19 test, uh, a PCR test, um, as well as a CT angiogram and PE protocol. In her case, she, uh, she first got a chest X-ray. Um, as you can see here, um, she has increase in bilateral opacities, uh, worsening pulmonary nodules and mediastinal lymphadenopathy. They um, actually compared it to the prior uh, X-rays and, and CT chest. 
and a COVID-19 PCR uh, was performed and it was positive. So she was subsequently hospitalized uh, and 10 days after her presentation, she was actually getting ready to be discharged home, but she was found to be more tachycardic with decreasing oxygen saturation in room air while she was ambulating with physical therapy. Um, their concern was potentially COVID-19 um, uh, again, even though the prior test was negative uh, prior to her discharge planning, um, and that was continu that continued to be negative. Um, but they subsequently got a chest X-ray and a CT chest, and this is the findings from the chest X-ray and the chest CT. Uh, you can see that the chest X-ray showed right upper lobe collapse. Um, this was followed up by a CT, which showed worsening of her tumor burden. Um, it was so bad that it was now compressing the right upper lobe, uh, proximal pulmonary artery, the bronchus, um, and subsequently resulted in her becoming symptomatic. Luckily, she wasn't yet discharged home. Uh, so subsequently, interventional pulmonology and radiation oncology were consulted. Uh, interventional pulmonology actually performed a flexible and rigid bronchoscopy when they were able to place a stent. Radiation oncology performed five fractions of radiation to the right hilar and mediastinal mass. And she was subsequently discharged home 21 days after her presentation. And at that time, uh, the institution made sure that she had medical coverage. So now the big question is, can she be seen safely in the cancer center for follow-up? Um, and the answers are, yes, we can see her. Uh, 20 days have passed since symptom onset. She no longer has any symptoms, including recurrent fevers. Uh, she can come back, but full PPE and 95 mask eye protection needs to be worn by healthcare providers. No, she cannot come back to the cancer center unless a COVID-19 test is performed. Or no, she needs to be in isolation for 90 days. Per the CDC guidelines, we now know that uh, the testing criteria doesn't need to be um, uh, fulfilled in these, in these cases. 20 days have passed since her symptoms. She is symptom-free. Um, and uh, at this point, she can safely come back to the cancer center. We, of course, have universal surgical masking and eye protection already. Um, there's no need for N95 mask and eye protection in this case, um, as we are not concerned about uh, COVID-19 uh, increased risk of exposure in her case. One month after her presentation and one week following her discharge, she was actually started on chemotherapy um, and is symptomatically doing better currently. Thank you, Dr. Sinar. Dr. Fair, would you discuss an emergency department case for us? So for the case in the emergency department, um, this is a 70-year-old man that presents with a chief complaint of dizziness and palpitations. His um, past medical history is significant for atrial fibrillation and obstructive sleep apnea. His past surgical history is appendectomy. His social history, he is a non-smoker, a retired teacher, and he lives with his wife. He is on metoprolol and warfarin. And this is all the, the information that you receive when you see the chart before even going into the room. When you walk into the room, your patient tells you that he had a brief episode of dizziness before coming into the emergency department. He took his heart rate at home and noticed that it was 120 and it remained elevated for about an hour, um, but feels, he feels much better just before arrival. 
you asked him about his uh, previous visits and he mentioned that he has not seen his primary care physician in quite a few months uh, because of the pandemic. He is uh, supposed to be taking his metoprolol and his warfarin, but he ran out of the metoprolol, but continues to take his warfarin every day. He has not had his INR checked in about three weeks now. Uh, he denies any chest pain, any shortness of breath or syncope. And to his knowledge, he has not been exposed to COVID-19, um, but he was pretty concerned about the episode that happened today. On physical exam, you note that his vital signs are within normal limits of a blood pressure of 112 over 60, heart rate of 79, respiratory rate of 14, and his temperature of 97.9. He appears to be in no acute distress. His cardiovascular exam is significant for an irregularly regular um, heart rate. Um, his neuro exam is normal. During the course of the emergency department, you order a set of labs, including a CBC, uh, a CHEM-7, and an INR. His CBC comes back within normal limits as well as a CHEM-7. His INR is 2.1. You obtain an EKG and notice that he does, uh, of course, have atrial fibrillation. There's no evidence of acute ischemia, and it is now a regular rate of 79. So what are some things to consider as a clinician in this case and seeing your patient in the emergency department? Well, you realize that they are in your emergency department, but they have a desire to limit their in-person healthcare contact, both with their primary care physician and coming back to the emergency department. They mentioned that they have a vulnerable family member at home. His wife uh, has had cancer and is now in remission, um, but he's very concerned about her exposure and given her age and her diagnosis. They live in an urban area and have always taken public transportation. Given the pandemic, they're very concerned about taking public transportation right now um, and have limited their, um, limited their access to most places. You ask about their internet access and it has been inconsistent. Uh, they are comfortable using the internet but it's not always been reliable for them. They are not comfortable with most of the telehealth technologies um, that they've read about and that their doctors talked to them about. And they're also concerned about what medications might be uh, written for them today in the emergency department. So one thing that is extremely important is to think about shared decision-making. And in this case, that shared decision-making is not only with the patient in front of you, but also with their primary care physician as they are presenting with a chronic illness and we have one snapshot in time, both to address the current issue as well as to make sure that subsequent follow-up is the best that it can be and that we do not disrupt the care, but we contribute to their comprehensive um, and continuing medical care. In our discussion, based on what the physician is, I mean, based on what the patient is asking for, we have a discussion with them about transitioning them from warfarin to a direct acting oral anticoagulant. Um, they were aware of this had been taking warfarin for so long that he was not sure that he was ready to switch. But given the pandemic, he's thinking that maybe this is something to, um, to think about. He also mentioned um, in-home INR testing as coming to the ER, of course, is not ideal, but also getting his INR checked at his local clinic has been uh, a bit of a burden given the increase in, in the COVID-19 cases. We also talked about mobile technology assistance. Um, his clinic has a, a variety of options to assist patients in um, accessing mobile technology. And in the emergency department, we also have follow-up with mobile technology as well. Um, and we discuss what that would look like and how we could support um, providing better broadband access and assistance uh, with using the technology. 
And finally, we discussed home health and would it be beneficial to bring in a, a nurse um, or a nurse tech in to uh, check INR and also to, to give regular follow-up on this patient. So what happened in this particular case? Um, well, after checking uh, the formularies and seeing what was covered by his insurance, he is on Medicare, and it was determined that he was comfortable switching to a direct acting oral anticoagulant after conversations with his primary care physician. A discussion was also made that he would limit his in-person follow-up, that instead he would have a follow-up with the emergency department in a few days to make sure that his heart rate was normal. He would also follow up with his primary care physician um, using telehealth. Fortunately, their clinic has a service where their nurse can walk them through the technology and give them tutorials and get them comfortable with the, uh, with the technology, as well as support for broadband access um, that the clinic provides for patients who need it. In the conversation, um, the clinician directly or astutely assessed for social needs, including the transport, lack of transportation access. Although financially, the, the patient um, does not have financial concerns um, with regards to transportation, the issue really is that they live in an urban area and they've never uh, had their own car. There's no need for that. Um, but given the pandemic, transportation has been a challenge. Um, so the clinic has an opportunity to provide um, Ubers and Lyfts and, and other uh, rideshare programs in case they need to get to the clinic for an in-person visit, as well as in the ED, we can provide that as well. Now you may re recognize that I did not mention the race and ethnicity of this patient. Uh, this patient is actually Latinx or specifically um, they are Dominican. And I didn't mention it because um, in this case, it, it didn't need to come up. The patient was English speaking, uh, the patient, um, we were able to address their social needs. But what is extremely important and what we notice in medicine is that implicit bias does come into play in our patient encounters. And one way out of several to mitigate bias at the bedside is to ask the patient what their desires are and have shared decision-making. There is a power differential between physicians and patients. And if we actively engage in that shared decision-making, um, that can help to mitigate bias at the bedside. And this is one of the recommendations from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement or the IHI. In addition, when we complete our patient encounters and as we go on, we have to collect data on race ethnicity and incorporate this data, these data into our quality improvement. We oftentimes take a step back and make sure our entire patient population is achieving a certain health outcome, but we neglect to stratify by race and ethnicity. In this case, you notice that your black patients and your Latinx patients are not always getting offered the direct acting oral anticoagulants as often as your white patients. And in this case, you make um, the decision to, you notice that you're not doing this as often and you make sure that you are offering this to all of your patients. If we don't have these data, we won't notice that we are making a difference in our patients. And this concludes the case. To wrap things up, let me ask you, what are the most important lessons we have learned so far from the COVID-19 pandemic? And Dr. Sinar, how will this change the future practice of clinical oncology? Yes, so I think uh, there's certainly a lot of lessons learned during the pandemic. Um, I think communication and transparency and the importance of it uh, was one of the most integral parts of what we learned during the pandemic. 
Um, I don't think that as an institution, as a healthcare field even, um, we hadn't communicated as intensely as we had done prior to the pandemic. Um, we also learned that we can do things a lot more efficiently. Technology was adapted a lot more quickly than it would have been ever before uh, uh, prior to the pandemic. Um, a lot of institutions converted to telehealth if they hadn't implemented it yet. Um, and those who already had it implemented in their system um, actually uh, increased their volumes quite rapidly. Um, there were development of digital tools to screen for symptoms. Um, and these probably will continue to evolve uh, into patient reported outcomes um, and other tools to be able to evaluate our patients more. But it also brought up the topics that we wanted to dis uh, discuss today, and that's the healthcare inequities uh, and the importance of that and to be able to determine how we can deliver care at a high quality to all of our patients. Um, the remote visits with providers in supportive care uh, were an inter interesting and important part of the care. Um, but clinical trials, especially in the cancer center world where it's so integral and we still have uh, so much um, room to grow in regards to improving our accruals to, uh, to studies. I mean, it still continues to be around 5% that oncology patients are enrolled in tr into trials. So perhaps providing more remote opportunities so they don't have to drive to an academic center a more, a more, on a more regular basis than they, than they have to, um, perhaps will encourage more patients to be enrolled in clinical trials. Dr. Fair, how will this change the practice of emergency medicine? Our practice is forever changed. Um, you know, we will continue to be the safety net for, uh, for the healthcare system, continue to see anyone who comes into our doors. And I think that there is a renewed sense of respect for um, my colleagues who are on the front line during this pandemic and continue to be so even as cases continue to rise. Um, but as my colleague, Dr. Sinar said, you know, this attention on health inequities has now been elevated to the consciousness of the medical community in a way that it hadn't been before. And it's my hope and desire that it's not just elevated to our, to our consciousness, it's not just something that we talk about, but that we initiate policies, procedures, and change in behavior to address these inequities um, because they haven't really been addressed before. We noted that back in 2002, the Institute of Medicine uh, developed a report called, uh, the then Institute of Medicine developed a report called Unequal Treatment that showed that there were gross inequities in the healthcare that we were providing. Um, but fast forward to today, looking at data from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, we don't see much change um, in those inequities. So hopefully we have an opportunity to do that now. Also in emergency medicine, um, this, uh, the idea of telehealth is actually here to stay in our community as well. Although we typically see patients in person, we often bring patients back for follow-up. And now that can be done, a lot of it can be done remotely. Um, we can do physical exams, um, these things that are visual, and we can make sure that we are communicating with our patients remotely. And also people who may have come to the emergency department before because of convenience may not come back um, during the pandemic or even afterwards for fear of being exposed to any sort of disease. So we have to think differently. We will continue to think differently about even as emergency providers, how do we engage with our patients um, remotely? And finally, I think that there's a growing recognition that we, even as emergency providers, 
cannot just treat the patient in front of us, but we have to think about how do we better engage with communities to address social needs as well, including uh, providing meals and providing housing right there at the bedside, but working more systemically and in partnership with our communities to address the larger social determinants of health. Thanks for those responses. Dr. Sinar, what is the most common question, if I may ask, that you've been asked by your patients during the COVID-19 pandemic, and how did you respond? Certainly the most commonly asked question by my patients are, when will this be over? Um, so I treat a lot of patients with pancreatic cancer, and um, as we all know, the prognosis is grim, and these patients... The important thing for us as we uh, provide them with treatment options is to also provide them with good quality uh, of, uh, of life um, and uh, to make sure that they can continue to do things they enjoy doing in their limited time. Um, and it's increased so much anxiety and worry in these patients who are no longer able to do all the things that they would want to do uh, because of the limitations of COVID, their fear of COVID. So this certainly is a big question. Uh, when will this be over? Am I even going to see a day when I'm not going to wear a mask before uh, and, and see my loved ones? Um, and so I think, you know, my answer is usually that it's not going to be anytime soon. Um, over the next year or so, we'll know more. Um, that what happens next really depends on uh, a lot of things, um, whether... Uh, we continue to be vigilant in our physical distancing, masking, um, and social distancing when we have any symptoms, um, and also the development of a vaccine and how successful that vaccine will be, the duration of the immunity following an infection or the vaccination. Um, and this, I thought, was a, a really good diagram of if, for example, the immunity lasts less than 40 weeks, this is probably going to be something um, that will be an annual winter outbreak, uh, similar to the flu, the influenza. Um, if the immunity lasts, uh, you know, around 100 weeks or so, then outbreaks may be every other year. So I think it's important for us to continue to be vigilant and to be responsible for, um, for all of our patients, especially the vulnerable patients uh, who have cancer. Thank you, Dr. Sinar and Dr. Fair, for this excellent review. And thank you to our audience for your participation in this activity. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit, or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.